welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details bonus episode. We got a bonus one for you guys this week. Say hi, Darcy. Hello. Um, We are going to talk about some interesting things this week. I want to kind of put a post note on the kidnapping episode from earlier on in the week or from the end of last week. And then I want to talk about a couple of current event issues that are going on right now. And then we're going to end the episode with a little bit of a positive note um, with respect to kidnapping slash runaway type issues. Um, Starting off today, though, we're going to talk about something that's been pretty current in the news now, and it's these hikers that have disappeared in Maui. I believe there are two of them. And I <laughs> I find it kind of interesting because, like, number one, Maui is not that big. How could somebody get lost and disappear in a rainforest slash hiking area in Maui? I find that kind of hard to believe. But um, the first one was this woman. So I found this article from cbsnews.com called Miracles to Happen. Maui hiker who went missing for two weeks is found alive. So this woman went missing about two weeks ago in Maui, uh, Amanda Eller, age 35. She was last seen on May 8th and was believed to have been lost during a hike. It came down to life and death. I had to choose. I chose life, Eller said from her hospital bed. Um, Eller was able to wave down a helicopter from a creek bed between two waterfalls, said Sarah Hayes, a volunteer who helped organize the search. She is just as strong as we always said she would be, Hayes wrote on Facebook. We knew she would make it this long. Julia Eller said her daughter had gone on what was supposed to be a three-mile hike, but eventually became disoriented and could not find her way back to the car. It's very easy to get misguided on the trail, she said. So evidently she was slightly injured and the private owned helicopter had been funded by public donations. She suffered from severe sun exposure, but had managed to stay hydrated and ate fresh fruits from the trees. She was found without shoes and had been seen by an orthopedic surgeon. The area where Eller was found is believed to have been roughly four miles from where her car and cell phone were discovered May 9th in the parking lot of the Kahikapu Loop Trail in Hawaii. Uh, Maui County Mayor said he's grateful to the, for the community's efforts in the search. So this case was very interesting because she was gone for like two weeks, evidently. And a lot of people thought her boyfriend had done something to her because she left her everything she had, evidently, her cell phone and everything in her car to go take this hike on Maui. First of all, who does that? Yeah, I think it's probably a good idea to keep your phone with, or I mean, I don't know, maybe was there no service? Like if there's no service, it doesn't make sense. You're just carrying your own extra weight. Right. But, but if there's service, I think it's probably a good idea to always keep your phone with you. And she was four miles from her car and she was missing for two weeks. Four miles. Yeah. <laughs> like it, that, well, it was, it was just a three mile hike too, but she did get injured, right? Yeah. Well, um, Hang on one sec. This is just... I don't know. I remember it happening, and I was just so surprised that they found her, because usually those stories don't always have a happy ending, you know? Yeah. No, I I was just certain, because we've had so many of these cases lately where these women just disappear off the face of the planet. Their cell phone is 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 found, located, their purse, their all their stuff, which is the case with this gal, Amanda, her purse, her cell phone, her keys, everything was, well, not her keys. She obviously had her keys with her, but everything that she had was found in her car. And you just wouldn't think. And you kind of assume, especially in like 2019, that if you are not, like if your cell phone is found somewhere like out, like 
you didn't take your cell phone with you, like you, you tend to think like the worst, you know, cause like everybody always has their phone at all times. Right. So in, in most of the cases that you see where they found, they locate the phone or the personal items of the person they they typically end up dead, which is a right. very, very horrifying experience. But the, they said that she took her shoes off to dry them off after she had gone through a stream or something and lost her shoes. So she's wandering around out in this Maui wilderness for two weeks, mm. eating fresh fruits and drinking out of streams. And they finally find her shoeless and just wandering around aimlessly looking like she's been on meth. Like I just, I, I mean, it's, it's very impressive that she was able to find the right things to eat. Right. Like it's easy to eat the wrong thing and end up in serious trouble. Right. But she see it just, this whole thing seemed very suspicious to me. It just didn't, something seems off about this story. Is it just me? I don't know. I don't get that feeling at all. Like okay. there's some story where it does feel off, like the Sherry Papini. Remember that one? Like, the yes. one that she was Oh my God. That, that was one crazy. Pinky, but like, I don't know. I don't get that feeling from this one, but the actually, actually this in that same week, they, they found a body of another hiker who had been missing in Maui for more than a week. And this one, I believe he was a local from Hawaii. So a helicopter located the body of Noah Nina. He was 35 years old and he'd actually fallen. Same age. Interesting, huh? Sega. Same age. Him yeah. and Amanda Eller so, were both mid, late 30s. They found him about 300 feet below a fall line in the summit region of Mauna Pahalau. I've not, I've never been to Hawaii, so I'm going to fuck all of these names up, but he'd been, he'd been report, he was reported missing on May 20th and they found him, I believe 10 days later. He was found on the Northwest side of the Island and his body was found at about 635 during a search made up of West Mount Maui watershed employees, division of forestry, wildlife personnel, and a pilot from Wynwood Aviation. So I guess when this article came out two days ago, it was, not officially identified, but preliminarily identified, and confirmation will be made following an autopsy. His body was found approximately 400 feet below a steep ridge, and the area was accessible only by helicopter, and Maui Fire Department rescue crews needed to be dropped in to retrieve the body. So essentially he was hiking and he fell and kind of crawled to this area, or he fell onto this area? I think area. he fell into this area. And yeah. died immediately, or was alive for a it while. Doesn't it say. doesn't say. God, it doesn't that's so say. sad. It hasn't, they haven't had done the autopsy yet because this was just two days ago. Yeah. So, I, so, yeah, I don't know. But two of the men that actually were involved in the search for Amanda Eller were actually also involved in this search. That's, so that's just kind of interesting. That's so sad because this guy looked super fit. Like, he, he probably had done this hike before. He was an experienced hiker. So like two very, very different outcomes for a similar type of situation and one survives and one doesn't. It just is, it's sad. Right. And, and like I said, I've never been to Hawaii, but from what I can tell, it looks like the rainforests are like pretty dense there. And so I can kind of see how it's easy to get lost like that. And especially also if if you slip and fall, like, I don't know, know. I know, but like, I think about it and I've been to Hawaii many times and I just can't imagine getting lost for two weeks. I've been there. I've hiked around in these back woods and to some of these waterfalls and in the local spots. And I just find it hard to believe that someone could get lost for that long and not be able to find their way four miles back to a car. 
Well, it also said in your article she was disoriented, though. So I don't know how that happened. Well, and then the thing is, like, it seems also like basic, you know, you follow a stream to the trailhead or you follow a stream to wherever. I mean, it just, I don't know. She clearly was out of her gourd, maybe by exposure or, you know, something else going on. But him, on the other hand, I just think he got extremely unlucky and and fell and injured himself and just could not come back from that. Very, very sad stories. Um, We are going to switch a little bit of gears right now and add a um, another case to what we spoke about earlier on in the week. I found this one very interesting because it seems somewhat related to the Fritzl case um, in that people often refer to these two particular cases together. This was also an Austrian woman. Her name is Natasha Kampusch. This particular case, this woman was born February 1988. She's an Austrian woman who was abducted at the age of 10 on March 2nd, 1998, and held in a secret cellar by her kidnapper, Wolfgang, I can't even say his last name, Pukluft, Pukluft, P, it's P, and this is, I don't even know how to, what this letter is. It's like a, the European letter, R, I think, I-K-L-O-P-I-L. I don't know how to say his name. Lawful. Any German speakers out there, feel free to. Anyway, this man, yeah. and okay. I don't think his name matters, to be honest with you. But anyway, this man, Wolfgang, okay. whoever, kidnapped her and held her for more than eight years until she escaped in August of 2006. She has written a book about her, her ordeal called 3096 Days. This was released in 2010. There was also a German film called 3000. 96, which is based on her story. But essentially, this young girl was raised by her mother and her father in Vienna, Austria. Her early life with her mother was reported as not a happy one. Evidently, when they investigated this case, they claimed that the time that she was in prison might have been better for her than what she experienced before. So she was not in a good home situation to begin with. Wow. Although when the authorities made this statement... They were, they were threatened with a lawsuit over these remarks. But her family yeah, included that's, that's fair. Her family included two adult sisters and five nieces and nephews. Um, her parents separated while she was a small child and divorced after her abduction. She spent time with both of them and returned to her mother's home for a holiday with, with her father the day before the kidnapping. So oh, the actual kidnapping herself, 10-year-old Kampusch left her family's residence in Vienna on the morning of March 2nd, 1998, but failed to arrive at school or come home. A 12-year-old witness reported having seen her being dragged into a white minibus by two men, although she failed to report a second man ever being present. A massive police oh. effort followed in which 776 minivans were examined, including that of her kidnapper, who lived about a half an hour from Vienna by car in the lower Austrian town of Strasov, under Norban. Although he stated that on the morning of the kidnapping he was alone at home, the police were satisfied with his explanation that he was using the minibus to transport rubble from construction on his home. So they were, he was like, oh yeah, no, I was home alone all morning and I used my truck for oh, constructions. And they were like, okay. Because Kampusch had carried her passport with her when she left, she'd been on a family trip to Hungary a few days before, the police extended the search abroad. 
Accusations against Kampusha's family complicated the issue even more. During the eight years of her captivity, Kampusha was held in a small cellar underneath this man's garage. The entrance was concealed with a cupboard. The cellar had only five square meters, about 54 square feet of space. It had a door made of concrete that was reinforced with steel. The room had no windows and was completely soundproof. So obviously this man, as well as Fritzl, spent a great deal of time ensuring that the space he had for this young girl was soundproof and ready and able to take her and hold her captive for a long time. For the first six months of her captivity, this young girl was not allowed to leave the chamber at any time. And for several years of her captivity, she was not allowed to leave the tiny space at night. Afterwards, she spent increasing amounts of time upstairs and in the rest of the house, but each night was sent back to the chamber to sleep as well as when this man was at work. In later years, she was seen outside in the garden alone. This man's business partner had said that she seemed relaxed and happy when she and this man were at home, and they called on his home to borrow a trailer. After her 18th birthday, she was allowed to leave the house with her kidnapper, but he threatened to kill her if she made any noise or made any indication that anything was wrong. He actually took her on a skiing trip as well to a resort near Vienna for a few hours. She initially denied that they had made the trip, but eventually admitted that it was true, although she said she had no chance to escape during that time. According to her official statement after her escape, she and this man would get up early each morning to have breakfast together. He gave her books, so she educated herself. Later, when explaining that in general, she did not feel she had missed anything during her imprisonment. She noted, I spared myself many things. I did not start smoking or drinking, and I did not hang out in bad company. But she also said, I always had the thought, surely I didn't come into the world so I could be locked up and my life completely ruined. I gave in to despair about this unfairness. I always felt like a poor chicken in a hen house. You saw my dungeon on television and in the media. Thus, you know how small it was. It was a place to despair. She was clearly given a radio and a TV to pass the time. And although she was initially allowed only to watch tape programs and listen to foreign radio stations. This was all because she was not supposed to be aware of the publicity and the search for her. Mm-hmm. So he basically told her no one was looking for her. At that's one, kind of the similar thing with Gracie Dugard. Right, right. So that's yeah. the, part of their whole plan to sort of brainwash these young girls mm-hmm. into compliance. But at one point, she actually tried to escape by jumping out of the car. This case, I think, is very interesting because she was allowed a lot of time upstairs. And she spent this yeah. time doing housework and cooking for him. He lived alone. Evidently, yes. So oh. she later told authorities that he beat her so badly she could hardly walk at times. And he would take his camera and photograph her. According to her autobiography, as part of her abuse, he would starve her to make her physically weak so she would be unable to escape. Yeah. Her body mass index... I think that's pretty common fat and like drugging. Yes. Her body um, mass index had reached as low as 14.8 during captivity. A normal BMI is 18.5 to 25. So he had warned her as well that the doors and windows of the house were booby-trapped with high explosive and claimed to be carrying a gun and that he would kill her and the neighbors if she attempted to escape. So not only would she get hurt or killed if she tried to escape, but he would kill the neighbors as well. On, she also attempted to make noise during her years of captivity by throwing bottles of water against the walls because that was the only really thing she had access to. But none of this really worked. At 18 years old, this poor gal tried again to escape. She, 
she was cleaning and vacuuming her kidnapper's BMW 850i automobile in the garden. This gentleman, her kidnapper, got a call on his mobile phone. Because of the vacuuming noise, he walked away to take the call. At that point, Kampush left the vacuum cleaner running and ran away. So she escaped when the distraction of the noise was enough to keep him on his phone and away from the car. She was unseen by her kidnapper, who, according to the caller, completed the phone call without any sign of being disturbed or distracted. She ran for some 200 meters through gardens and a street, jumping fences and asking passersby to call the police. But they paid her no attention. Oh, my gosh. After about five minutes, she knocked on the window of a 71-year-old neighbor saying, I am Natasha Kapush. The neighbor called the police who arrived a little bit later and she was taken down to the police station. She was identified by a scar on her body and by her passport, which was found in the room where she had been held and as well by DNA tests. They said she was in decent physical health, although she looked pale and shaken and weighed only about 106 pounds. She had weighed only 99 pounds when she disappeared eight years earlier. So clearly he was keeping her very, very slim and starving at the point of starvation because she was 5'9 when they found her. The first police officer to speak to Kampush after her ordeal said that she was astonished by this girl's intelligence and vocabulary. After two- Yeah, she clearly is very smart. Like your, your statement um, that you were reading of her, like she's very intelligent and the way that she escaped too. Right. I'm just a little bit surprised that it took her eight years to get to that point. Yeah. But evidently, um, her kidnapper bought her books, newspapers, and a radio, which she tuned to educational programs and classical music. Her kidnapper, knowing that the police were after him, killed himself by jumping in front of a suburban train near a train station in Vienna. He planned to commit suicide rather than be caught, having told Kampusch that they would never catch him alive. Her kidnapper was an Austrian communications technician of Czech origin. He was an only child born in 1962. Evidence recovery was complicated because his computer, his only computer was a 1980s Commodore 64, which is incompatible with modern day recovery programs. He allegedly had a daughter with the sister of a business partner, but was never married. And before he Kampush escaped, he was trying to procure false papers as a Czech citizen in order to begin a new life with Kampush. So he basically was like, hell yeah, I'm going to run away with this girl. She's going to stay with me forever. And Kampush was like, later days, I'm not staying. But after the particular escape that went on, she did, she got a lot of media attention and it was probably very very overwhelming for her as you can probably imagine but she didn't want to answer questions at first she was like you know I'm done I don't want to talk about this but then she ended up writing a book about it where she was kind of panned for they said she sympathized with her captor she at one point wrote I feel more and more sorry for him he's a poor soul in spite of the fact that he held her captive for eight years And then they said she also cried inconsolably when she was told he was dead and lit a candle for him at the morgue. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So newspapers quoted that she may suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. But again, we kind of had that discussion with regard to J.C. Dugard as well in that these women are put into these situations where they're kidnapped on a long-term basis and threatened with death, death on a constant basis. And so they do essentially what they need to do to survive. 
and that's it. Yeah. In 2009, well, essentially she re- she released her book first, um, which got a lot of both critics and um, acclaim. But in 2009, she became the new face of the animal rights group PETA in Austria. So she kind of became a hmm. little celebrity. Um, she was talking about... Yeah, I think I've heard of her book before. Yeah, she was talking about animals and demanding freedom for zoo animals. In 2009... Vienna public prosecutor stated the DNA test and questioning of witnesses had led theories to theories being discounted that this gentleman had had an accomplice accomplice. So there were some people that had said that there were multiple men that kidnapped her. And there was evidence that that had happened in the beginning and that multiple men pulled her into the white van. And then there was some talk with regard to child pornography and sex rings and sex slavery and things like that. But they determined, I guess the police determined in 2009 that that was not the case. So the house where she was imprisoned was built by this gentleman, this Czech gentleman's grandfather after World War II. Although, excuse me, during the Cold War period, the man who built the house also built a bomb shelter. This was thought to be the origin of Kampusha's dungeon. Mm. This gentleman who kidnapped her took over the house in 1984 following his grandfather's death. Kampusha now owns the house in which she was imprisoned, which is very interesting. She Whoa. says, and, and this was sort of the settlement that happened um, as a result of her kidnapping by the authorities in Austria, which is scary. So she said, I know it's grotesque. I must now pay for electricity, water, and taxes on a house I never wanted to live in. So it was kind of a settlement for reparations to this this young lady who was kidnapped from the man who did it. But it was reported that she claimed the house from his estate because she wanted to protect it from vandals and being torn down. She also noted she has visited visited it since her escape. When the third anniversary of her escape approached, it was revealed she'd become a regular visitor at the property and was cleaning it out, possibly to move in herself. In January 2010, she said she had retained the house because it was such a big part of her formative years, also stating that she would fill in the cellar if it was ever sold, admit it will never become a museum to her lost adolescence. The cellar was indeed filled in, and she still owns the house as of the records that are out today. This is an interesting case um, because it appears that, you know, unlike her, um, the other young ladies that we talked about earlier, she was not necessarily held in such a strict captivity as some of the other girls were. She was allowed a lot more freedom. She went on ski trips, etc. So interesting. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Like at first they're really restricted and then they allow more and more freedom because you get this learned helplessness of there's no point in me trying to escape. But like when you were talking about how she was kept in the cellar and then she was allowed out, but then still had to sleep there and then she was allowed to leave the house. But then like, like that's how you treat a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Like you crate train a dog, you keep them there and when you leave the house and when you go to, when you go to sleep and then as they get older and learn not to go to the bathroom in the house, then you let them out and they don't have to say anything like that. That's how you train a dog. Yeah. Like that's just awful to treat a human like that. I just find that it's very interesting that these two cases were the other case of the Fritzl case. And this case were in similar areas in both in Austria, right. both similar types of situations. And that these men had were delusional enough to think that number one, that this was not a forced act by the of, the, of the rape and abuse and sexual abuse of these young women. And that in this last case, he actually thought he was going to run away to Czechoslovakia with this young lady and build a life, even though she was a very yeah. unwilling captor and he believes she loved him. It sounds like the, the really interesting thing I think is 
that he knew that because he he had awareness that this was not like I don't know like when he committed suicide that tells you like he knew that this wasn't a realistic plan like that he you know what I mean well maybe just reality kind of slapped him in the face when they were like hey you're gonna go to prison for the rest of your life for this asshole. right yeah that's true so we kind of talked front of a train <laughs> right that sounds horrifying yeah. we talked but good riddance right don't right. make the justice yeah, system spend all that money to take you to trial. Bye. Right. But although, yeah. you know, it's gotta be a little bit hard on the victim because she doesn't really have that final closure of ending it all, you know, in some ways. Right. And it, she probably has mixed feelings with it. They said she cried inconsolably when it happened, which is horrifying as well, but I'm sure she really didn't have a lot of control over that. Yeah. I can't imagine how that would feel. No, you have a little bit of information. We don't want to end this episode on such a heavy, heavy note. But there is a little bit of information that you found earlier on a song that has been updated. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? So um, I am a child of the 90s, and I wish that we still lived in the 90s because the music was amazing. And I know you hate this song, but I loved this song growing up. Soul Asylum, Runaway Train. The song originally came out in 93, and the video was really, like, memorable because it featured missing children in the United States. And it had graphics with statistics, like every year there's 400,000 children that go missing kind of a thing. And then it showed actual missing children. And there were a couple different iterations of the video. But overall, there were 36 missing kids featured in the videos. And depending on which website you read, either 21 or 26 of those children were actually located and recovered. That's awesome. And now... Some of these, yeah. So some of those kids, though, were runaways from troubled homes. Yeah. And so it, they didn't actually want to go home, and they were actually returned. But the overall thing of recovering 21 or 26 to 36 is is pretty incredible, and it's an amazing thing that Soul Asylum did with this video. This is the, I guess it was the 25th anniversary, so maybe the song came out in 94. But anyway, there is a new video. It has been remade by... Skylar Gray, Jamie N. Commons, and Gallant. They kind of did this remake of the song, and there's a new video that they also created with it in collaboration with NCMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And if there's a there's a video on YouTube that you can watch that's just a standard video. But if you go to the website runawaytrain25.com, you can actually watch the video there, and it uses geotagging technology to show you missing children in your geographical area. So wherever your internet's connecting from where you watch this video, it's going to show you kids that are missing in your area. And we'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes guys, so that you can take a look at it. And it gives you information on, on the kids and in the, like in the actual website, you can click on and get the information about the missing children that are featured in the video. And in my specific area, there's six missing children that it showed in the video when I watched. So it's really, really amazing that they did this. And it's incredible that they were able to use this geo-tracking technology because that's how you target the people in your area, right? Like the more word you can get out about this, hopefully we can get some of these kids home and found and safe and things like that. So I just thought this was really cool. One, because I love the song. And and two, because Nick Nick is probably one of my favorite organizations uh to follow if you don't follow them on twitter you should follow them i believe they're just at nick but they do a lot of outreach and stuff and how to recognize 
you know, like online, online behavior for kids and things like that. Yeah. Um, and they work with a lot of people that were kidnapped and have come home and that stuff like that. So, uh, it's really cool. I encourage you guys to go watch it and share it. Again, that website is runawaytrain25.com. Plug the social media. We are at the BFD podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And our Gmail is at, or is just the BFD podcast at gmail.com. That is correct. So give us a shout out. Go follow us. Go email us. We love your feedback. And we are going to say goodbye for now. Um, Thank you for tuning into this special bonus episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you have not already. We appreciate any feedback from you guys. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.